From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Afghan women who pursued their passions are now hiding under the Taliban. We are seeing young women erasing their social media history. Their photos are now just the blank icon. But we're also seeing women burning their diplomas. So they're literally having to light their futures on fire. Coming up, a longtime champion in Colorado of Afghan women's rights. Then, school principal Carrie Melmed has a weakened immune system, but a strong mother. She heard that they were giving out the third COVID vaccine shot at this Walgreens. And I happened to be talking to her, like, literally while I was driving past that. I was like, oh my God, I'm right here. And Golden lands the largest fleet of autonomous vehicles in the country. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, Shannon, I understand there's just some stuff you can't discuss in this interview. I have to be very cautious in that we have certain things we can't talk about, and that's to protect the safety of women and their families that are right now in hiding or are trying to get evacuated. This is Shannon Galpin, a human rights activist who has lived in Summit County for the last two decades. She started the nonprofit Mountain to Mountain, which taught Afghan women to ride bicycles, vehicles, she says, for social justice. Many of the women Galpin worked with now fear for their lives, and she's trying to help evacuate them from afar. Shannon, tell me what, say, the last several days have been like for you and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, the last 48 hours have been pretty much on all modes of communication, texting, IG, Facebook, Twitter, email, phone, you know, WhatsApp, trying to reach out to everyone that I know and also getting inundated with requests for help. I literally have messages from Afghans that are in hiding who have just escaped the Taliban raiding their home, who are just petrified and scared. Tell us about the nature of these women, the work that they do, and what makes them vulnerable. I I guess in addition to simply being female uh, under a Taliban regime. I'm grateful that you you end it with just being female because I really am struggling with the need that we have to have to define these women and the the risk factors that they're living with by what they do, what their job is, when really it's just because of their gender. And yet the women who have broken through the gender barriers that are politicians, journalists, women's rights activists, athletes, artists, all of them, as well as their family members by association, are facing a very uncertain future, but are scared and we need to evacuate them. How many women are we talking about that you're concerned about and that you're in touch with? I'm concerned about thousands, tens of thousands. I am in touch with directly probably 50, as well as their family members. Most of them are now in Kabul, not because they live there, but because they've already traversed Afghanistan to get to Kabul, knowing that that is where 
the most likely places they'll be able to get evacuation. Now, for some time, we knew that the United States would be lessening and withdrawing its forces. Were some of these women on a process already to be leaving the country? Are they starting from scratch? Give us a sense. It's a pretty healthy mix of how these women are going through the process of trying to find safety and asylum. Some have applied for visas in the past, so there's at least a process in the system. The majority did not, and that's in large part because the system was so backed up, and it really has been at the uh, lack of foresight by the U.S. administration that they weren't recognizing that we needed to evacuate people before the military left. The fear that the president articulated in his address to the nation is that if you started to evacuate people in visible ways, that that would send a signal of panic that the Afghan forces, the U.S. trained, uh, perhaps weren't ready to fight the Taliban or capable. What do you make of that argument? We've seen for months what's happening in other provinces that the Taliban took over. But we've also been trying to get some of these young women access to support for you know the past couple of years. Um, this isn't unexpected. We've seen the levels of violence, and in particular, the levels of violence against women rising in the past five years. So, yes, I understand that argument. And no, I don't agree with it. Have the women you've been in contact with had brushes, new brushes with the, the Taliban? as they've taken power? Luckily, the women that are in Kabul, um, and we've seen a, a very different sense of the Taliban in Kabul than we're seeing in the rest of the country. I think the Taliban presence that we're seeing in Kabul is, dare I say, deferential. One sat down for an interview with a female journalist on Tolo News. That would never have happened uh, 20 years ago. But we also see them calling for amnesty. We see them uh, you know, interacting with people in the streets, taking photos. But that's not what's happening throughout the rest of the country. And I think that's very important because as we start to see this kind of burnished image, I don't believe, one, it's long term. I think it's while the international community is looking at Afghanistan, the Taliban are very aware. They're on Twitter. They know what's happening. And they know that, you know, they will have an easier time if they present themselves as changed. But in the provinces, and in, this has been going on now for a while, we, we've seen numerous reports of young women being forbidden to go to work, having to wear a burqa, being married to uh, Taliban commanders as young as 12. So I don't think that we can look to where most of the media coverage will be in Kabul as indicative of what's happening across the country. The Taliban, as human rights and women's rights activists have been saying, and particularly Heather Barr with Human Rights Watch has been doing in-depth reporting on this, the Taliban have not changed. Is there one woman in particular whose story you'd convey to us whom you're concerned about without naming a name? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, without giving specifics, you know, there's a, a young woman that I know very, very well. She went to high school and college in the U.S. She's living in Kabul right now. She has been incredible in terms of working in media and working as a human rights defender, but also as an athlete. And 
she is now with her family hiding basically in the dark in Kabul, hoping to, you know, be evacuated, hoping that she can get asylum. And she's someone who's worked with, you know, the U.S. She's worked as a translator. She's worked as, uh, in, like I said, in media. And, you know, she's early 20s. Early you know, 20s. Her life deserves a future. And to many of these young women, I think this is really the important point is in 20 years, the international community, particularly the U.S., told Afghan women, you go get educated, you go break barriers, you, you show the world what Afghan women are capable. And they did. And we celebrated them. We've nominated the cyclists for Nobel Peace Prizes. We've been National Geographic Adventures of the Year. They've been in museums and they've, they've had international acclaim. And then we abandoned them. And if we don't respect Afghan women, we don't respect any women. If we don't respect Afghan women, we don't respect any women. If we are so capable of abandoning Afghan women and girls, knowing what we know, this isn't an unknown, then that shows that the international community has zero respect for women. You can't, you can't parse based on geography or nationality. If you don't respect Afghan women, you don't respect American women or Canadian women or South African women. It doesn't matter. You can't abandon the same women that you invested in and told, go, be amazing. Oh, sorry. Good luck. And women, thusly, who have a reputation, a social media presence and history and are thus identifiable. I think that's partly what I'm hearing you articulate. Yeah, we are seeing young women that are erasing their social media history. You know, their their photos are now just the blank icon, you know, the, the dummy icon. There's no photo anymore in their icons if they're still on social media, which many are because it's their only way of communication. But we're also seeing women burning their diplomas there are reports from the American university that they are destroying all of the records so that if the Taliban came, they wouldn't have the records of their students. So they're literally having to light their futures on fire so that they can stay safe. I want to say that the Biden administration has frozen billions of dollars in Afghan reserves with the idea of depriving the Taliban of cash. The administration also sending emergency funds for evacuations. What do you say to the idea that there's no elegant way to leave a war? This wasn't about having an endless war. There were very few troops left in Afghanistan. Every member of the military that I have spoken to, ex-special forces, ex-army, they are appalled by what is happening. They're appalled. This isn't a, oh, well, you know, a forever war situation you have a way of supporting the diplomacy and the peace process that was happening and giving time to give the Afghans strength. And instead you pulled the rug out from underneath them during the diplomacy and the peace process so that the peace process never even finished. And then you pull out in the middle of the night from Bagram, embassies you know, evacuate and you are leaving people that have endured four decades of our involvement, four decades, not 20 years, 40 years, because we have been involved since the 80s. It is not okay 
that we we put it off as well, you know, we need its war to end. What about the American lives potentially saved with a withdrawal like this? What we heard from the president is the idea that he thinks first and foremost of those lives that he's asking to have put on the line. I would say that we were not at war with Afghanistan. We were with, at war, supposedly, with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda. Afghans were our allies. So the Afghan military, our allies, lost way more, tens of thousands of troops more than we did. I can't remember the number. It is an atrocious amount higher and no life should be worth more than the other. Those we said, we are your ally. But the thing that we, as we trained them, because the other thing that I hear, um, and I was really disappointed to hear President Biden say, was talking about how essentially putting the blame on Afghanistan. They didn't fight enough. They didn't fight for their country enough. They fought alongside us. They fought their own countrymen, you know, as Taliban. They fought against Pakistani, ISI. They have proved their worth, but we, as the U.S. military, depend upon air. We took all of the air support away, and we left the Afghan military in a situation of, like, how, how are they supposed to fight when they don't have the power? The only thing that was keeping the Taliban at bay before was, was air power, airstrikes. Have you had any wins in the last 48 hours, Shannon? Any developments that give you hope for the, the, yeah, the mission I have, a, have a couple of previous friends who are now in positions within the State Department that give me hope that we can get women and girls and young men. There, there. You know, I want to make make clear there are plenty of young men that have put their lives on the line as human rights defenders, as athletes, um, but also the families of these people that they're going to prioritize evacuation because right now. We don't need to be talking even about, um, you know, who did what and how. We need to get people evacuated. So we need to secure the airport. We need to secure the roads. We need to get people evacuated. Then we can talk about asylum and who's going to take everyone. Because every single country that was involved in Afghanistan has a responsibility to make sure every Afghan has a home. And you have contacts, you say, within the State Department that give you some sense of hope. Before we go, anything an individual can do listening to this conversation? Donating does matter right now because you can donate to humanitarian organizations on the ground that are helping refugees. You can be loud. We need everyone to be in the camp of repatriation, of asylum, that we need to be taking these refugees and we need to be speaking louder than the conservative voices that are fear-mongering against refugees. We need to take these amazing men and women, these girls and these boys, and give them a future. They don't deserve what they're facing right now. So we need to be on all social media platforms. We need to be calling our local leaders, our state leaders, our national leaders, and and we need to be just relentless asking for evacuation and asking for our refugee asylum numbers to be increased to take these Afghans. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate your time. I know it's precious right now. Thank you. I'm grateful. Shannon Galpin formerly ran a Colorado-based nonprofit fighting for women's rights in Afghanistan. Galpin's humanitarian work continues now from Scotland, where she has just relocated. 
You can read about Galpin's bicycle-based advocacy in the book Mountain to Mountain, A Journey of Adventure and Activism for the Women of Afghanistan. As for military deaths in Afghanistan, research from Brown University puts deaths of Afghan security forces at 69,000. The U.S. has lost 2,500 troops and nearly 4,000 civilian contractors. The boosters are coming. They're going first to people whose immune systems are moderately to severely compromised. The CDC now recommending a third COVID shot for cancer patients, organ transplant recipients, and others. Over the weekend, 50-year-old Carrie Melmed got her third shot. She's the principal of an independent charter school, High Point Academy in Aurora. She's also immunocompromised. I asked how she came to the decision to get boosted. It's, you know, a little scary, like not 100% sure what the right thing is to do. Hearing the chatter over the last couple months and weeks really around a potential booster, you know, it brought it more and more to the forefront of my thinking, like, is this something that I should do? My mom, even at 50, is worried about me and my health. And she heard that they were giving out the third COVID vaccine shot at this Walgreens. And I happened to be talking to her like literally while I was driving past that. I was like, oh, my God, I'm right here. I ended up going into the pharmacy and I asked. I was like, I'm not sure if I qualify. I told them, you know, the medication that I'm on and they know that it's one of those medication that compromises your immune system. And they have a list of conditions and types of people who can get, you know, the booster at this point. And after speaking with the pharmacist, she said, yep, you qualify. And then I got it. (laughs) Now, I, I don't intend to pry, but to the extent that it might help people listening, would you feel comfortable sharing either the condition or the medication uh, so that others who might be in a similar boat would understand that they qualify? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I have rheumatoid arthritis and I take Enbrel. And Enbrel, the way that it works to fight the arthritis and your body's kind of fighting itself. And so the medication I'm taking is suppressing my immune system. What was the series of shots you got the first time around? Moderna, Pfizer? So I got Moderna the first time. And the recommendation from the CDC is when possible to get the same type of mRNA vaccine the third time round. Was that possible at this pharmacy? No, they were giving out Pfizer. And, you know, just because Pfizer has been talking about a booster more than I've heard from any of the other um, pharmaceuticals, it felt more comforting to get Pfizer. I also know that Other countries are using Pfizer for their third shot. And the CDC says if you qualify for a third shot, get the one that's available. And so far, that research extends to the mRNA vaccines. Uh, No recommendations yet for folks who have gotten Johnson & Johnson. You know, it's interesting to be talking about a third shot, Carrie, when there are so many Americans who have yet to get any vaccine, either by circumstance or by choice. Did you think about that as you walked into the pharmacy the other day? You know, I do. I think that there's parts of the world where people haven't even had the first shot. And the answer, it seems, is to try to get as many people safely vaccinated as possible worldwide. And 
you know, citywide, uh, nationally. And so I think that, you know, it's more about doing our part by getting vaccinated and keeping each other as safe as possible. You're in a school environment as the, the principal. Kids are back. I don't hear them in the background. Yeah, our kids are about to come back. I wonder to what extent your profession and who you come in contact with uh, informed your decision to get a third shot. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that I am an educator was a huge factor for me. As a staff, we've been really committed to getting vaccinated because our kids can't be vaccinated right now. As a pre-K-8, where most of our students aren't able to get vaccinated, um, it was really a priority for me and the entire staff to be vaccinated so that we can do our part in keeping our kids safe. What are you doing around masking? Yeah, we are masking at High Point. All staff and students will be masked regardless of vaccination status. And we're doing that until we learn more about this Delta variant, until our kids can be vaccinated. And so we're starting smart, safe, and strong is what we're calling it to get everybody to rally around the masks again. Was there resistance around that from families? I think everybody was hoping that the school year would be mask-free. At the end of last year, there was hope that kids would be able to get vaccinated over the summer. And I think we all envisioned a much more normal year. And when it became more like apparent that we need to be masked again, I think people were, were pretty bummed. None of us like the mask. So it didn't necessarily get pushback. I think people get it and they understand why we need to wear it. But no one's excited about it. That's for sure. So you got the shot over the weekend. How you feeling? I feel good. I really feel good. I was expecting, you know, I was kind of preparing to be feeling kind of crappy because I definitely did the first time. You know, you kind of become like hyper aware of everything that happens, like a sniffle or a slight ache. But overall, I really feel good. I feel fine. Do you feel protected? Do you feel a little safer now? I do. I do. I think that... With the Delta variant and kind of the increase and, you know, I have a school community with hundreds of students and I can't really control uh, what happens outside of school. I can only control what happens inside of school and with my own actions and just doing what I can to be as safe so that we can stay open, so that kids can be in person. That's interesting. I expected you to have a much more selfish answer, but you really answered on behalf of the kids there. <laughs> I suppose that's probably why you're a principal, Carrie. <laughs> Look, I definitely don't want to get sick, that's for sure. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for talking with me about it and, you know, getting the word out that this will hopefully be possible for a lot more people. Carrie Melmet is principal of High Point Academy in Aurora. She's immunocompromised and just got a COVID booster per CDC recommendations. Boosters for the rest of the population will apparently start in late September, pending FDA authorization. The idea is that everyone who got a two-shot series should receive a third shot after eight months. Guidance again forthcoming on the J&J one and done. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. In Golden, you'll see vehicles without drivers. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. In a world where maps must be drawn and people divided, 
No part of Boulder County should be included in a district with Weld County. A beast of nightmare stalks the land. One of the shapes looked like a mythological salamander. That is where journeyman grain comes from. From CPR News, Purplish, the redistricturating, how Colorado is picking its new political maps and why it matters. Everywhere you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Driverless vehicles have generally been thought of as something still under development, not quite within reach. But the future has just pulled into golden. The Colorado School of Mines has launched what it calls the largest autonomous shuttle fleet in the country. CPR's Paolo Chalcida attended the big reveal. Hi, Paolo. Hi. When I think about autonomous vehicles... A Tesla, you know, which has like driverless functionality, seems like the closest thing out there. Uh, is that what the School of Mines is launching? No, that's not the case. Uh, these shuttles, nine of them, are big and bulky. Someone there described them to me as looking like a toaster on wheels. <laughs> okay. Each shuttle seats about six people, and they aren't going on highways either. They'll drive around campus into downtown Golden, but they can't go much faster than 20 miles an hour. Okay, so very localized. Um, But to be clear, they'll be on the same public streets as regular traffic, albeit slow speeds. Yeah, these are mainly residential and streets in, in Old Town, and they're also encouraging people to pass them when they have the chance. In their vehicles? Yes. Okay. Uh, Who developed this technology? So it was Easy Mile, a Denver-based company uh, that built the shuttles. They've had rollouts across the globe, but this is their biggest one in the U.S., and they're planning on more. Uh, I spoke to Sherard Agarwal, an executive there, and he says launches in Greenwood Village, Colorado Springs, and elsewhere are on the horizon. It's a matter of time. It's really a when, not an if question. And I think we're going to see, especially deployments like ours, when we're running at sub-20 miles an hour, uh, airports and corporate campuses, universities, it's very near. It's within a couple of years. How does the technology work, Paulo? So once all the passengers enter the vehicle, a safety ambassador on board has to manually close the doors, which signals to the shuttle's AI that it is safe to embark on its pre-programmed route. While it's driving, the shuttle uses light sensors to detect stuff around it, like other cars, pedestrians, or debris. And it's pretty quick, too. While I was on a test ride, a photographer stood in the way of the shuttle path, and it stopped until the guy moved. The vehicle is also 100% electric, but it only needs to be charged after a full day of driving. Why did these shuttles launch at the School of Mines? Mines President Paul Johnson told me several alumni worked on the shuttle's development team and advocated for a launch at the school. He said they jumped at the opportunity because of what the presence of these shuttles could mean for students. Mines isn't just a school for mining. In addition to that, students there study artificial intelligence, mechanical engineering, and other applied science. Johnson said he hopes students can find inspiration when they see the shuttles driving around campus. You mentioned the shuttles are fully electric. What are the environmental impacts of autonomous vehicles like these? The launch event for those shuttles took place under a sky turned gray by smoke from California wildfires. So it's no question that people are looking for alternatives to gas-guzzling vehicles to combat climate change. Buses used for public transportation are no exception. Several public figures were in attendance, and including Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera, and they described autonomous vehicles as the future of transportation, due in part to the zero emissions they emit. An RTD representative was there too, so it's no doubt they're considering the technology to eventually meet the state's climate goals. Well, Paolo, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. CPR General Assignment Reporter Paolo Chalcida, 
who is in Golden for the unveiling of what's touted as the country's largest fleet of autonomous vehicles. After the protests over police brutality and racial injustice, a lot of companies put out statements about diversity, and they might have hired executives to focus on workplace culture. I should say for transparency's sake that CPR did that. But law professor Nancy Leong of the University of Denver is much more interested in a company's walk than its talk, or a government's for that matter. Her new book is Identity Capitalists, the powerful insiders who exploit diversity to maintain inequality. We spoke in June. You see examples all over of identity capitalism in corporations, uh, baked into U.S. law and in your own personal circles. First off, give us a quick definition of identity capitalism. An identity capitalist is somebody who uses someone else's identity to benefit himself. So identity capitalism is a term that I use to describe the way that process uh, takes place throughout society. And you have seen this personally. You start with an example of a wedding you were invited to. I think it illustrates this point well. What's this story? Well, a few years ago now, I was invited to attend the wedding of one of my friends from college who I'd kind of fallen out of touch with over the years to the point that I was surprised to get this invitation. But I like weddings. I mean, who doesn't? And so I accepted the invitation. I went. Um, It was a beautiful ceremony. Everybody was having a good time, talking, dancing. And at one point during the reception, my friend came over to me and gave me a hug. She said she was really excited that I was there. And then she said, after all, if you weren't here, everybody who's here would be white. And I don't know that it showed on my face how taken aback I was by this, but I was. I realized that there was a reason for me being at the wedding, which didn't only have to do with how much my friend liked me. And I think this is really how I got started thinking about the idea of identity capitalism, just the idea that there was a benefit that my friend was getting out of me being at her wedding that, again, wasn't just about our friendship. How do you identify, if I may ask, racially? I identify as Asian American. Okay. And so what you're saying is that your friend was capitalizing on your identity, on your racial identity, to get something out of it. What do you think that she was getting out of it? I think she was getting several things. I think that we have reached a point in American society where people feel a little bit self-conscious or many people feel a little bit self-conscious if their social circle is only white. And so I think that she was getting the benefit of not having to think about that, right? Like not having to think about why her social circle was only white. Um, So there were some benefits just to her internally. I also think that there was a more performative benefit, that she uh, was able at this wedding to um, kind of, you know, point to me being in attendance as an example of how her friend circle was was diverse. Uh, Not that she would do this explicitly, although she did to me, But um, just in terms of the photos or um, maybe in terms of what she imagined her friends would think looking around, that was a benefit, I think, that she got out of this as well. And you write about this as a market. So there is a market in anti-racism or in not seeming racist. 
And I think that's an important thing to understand when we talk about identity identity capitalism. Explain that. Yeah, I think that's right. And the reason I think the uh, metaphor of the market is useful is because it helps us think about why um, there is this demand, to use another market concept, why there is this demand for certain types of identity, whether it is racial identity, whether it is... um, Uh, gender identity. Identities that have been historically underrepresented in one way or another are in demand right now to greater and lesser degrees in certain circumstances. And I think that's why, for example, we see things like companies paying a lot of attention to the photos on their websites or, uh, you know, who uh, in some instances gets promoted to particular um, public facing positions. You write a lot about photos, and you write about them in the context of college brochures as well. Why? So when I was first doing research for this project, um, I came across a really interesting example that involved a situation where the University of Wisconsin actually photoshopped a black student onto the cover of its um, admissions brochure. And... Uh, it's a, a group of white students at a football game, and then they just Photoshop this um, black student into the group. Well, the black student found out about it when he saw the brochure. Like, they didn't ask his permission. Um, they didn't even bother to stage a photo. They just turned to Photoshop. And you find examples that are on brochures, but you also find much deeper examples ingrained in the legal system. You are a law professor, and we're going to talk about those in the latter part of the interview. But uh, how did that turn out, that story of the brochure at the university? So the student filed a lawsuit against the university for essentially using his likeness without his permission. I won't get too technical here. Uh Um, But I think that the remedy that he sought was really interesting. So he wasn't trying to get anything for himself. He was seeking money from the university that the university would spend on programs to create authentic diversity. So programs to, um, for example, provide scholarships for underrepresented uh, groups of students, things like that. And authentic is a word that you really put forth as a solution to the sort of empty gestures of maybe inviting someone to a wedding with mixed, you know, uh, motivations or photoshopping someone on to a brochure. And, And that is to check for authenticity when you're about to take a step that may appear to be diverse. Would you just share a few words about authenticity? And I'm glad we're getting to solutions so quickly, by the way, and not just <laughs> outlining the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do spend a lot of time in the book um, kind of complaining about the problem and describing the problem. But I think that's important because I want people uh, to think about how pervasive this is. But in terms of authenticity, you know, I think that the intent or the purpose with which people take particular actions to increase diversity Um, I think that intent or purpose is really important because in the long run, it's going to contribute to how effective those measures are. So if if they're performative, they're also shallow. They may not be systemic changes. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's purpose is really just trying to get the credit for having, you know, for example, a diverse group of employees, then, you know, for their purposes, uh, just 
you know, uh, like a few photos on the website may get them, you know, 95% or 97% of the way that they, the, the way that they want to go. Um, whereas if somebody is trying to do something w- with the intent of creating more authentic diversity, then of course the photo won't be enough. Like they'll actually want to change the workplace culture. They may want to change their hiring practices or their retention practices. Um, It would involve much more sweeping changes. And that's what I meant when I introduced you saying you're much more interested in a company's or a government's walk than its talk. Uh, You cite the work of the Afro-Puerto Rican sociologist at Duke, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who wrote a book called Racism Without Racists. Uh, What did he find about white people's relationships, friendships with people of color? Yeah. So Eduardo Bonilla Silva, I mean, his work is is wonderful. And I recommend the the book um, really to everybody. So one of the things that he found is that white people consistently overestimate the number of white friends that they have. I'm sorry, the the number of non-white friends that they have and the closeness of their non-white friends. Um, And they do that both when they're describing their friend groups to other people and when, um, you know, uh, they're thinking about their friend groups, you know, to themselves. Like this is almost a self-delusion in some ways. And I suppose to some extent this connects back to the wedding. Let me just ask one thing about the wedding. Um, the, the motivation from your friend was not to have an all-white friend group. Is that a good motivation fundamentally with kind of a poor execution and how she handled it? Like, just reflect a little bit more on that. I know you've done a lot of thinking about it. I do think that that is a good motivation. Um, there uh, has been some research recently, and of course this is going to vary from one part of the country to another, hmm. but there's some research that shows that 70% of white people have no non-white friends. And I think that that really speaks to a lot of things about the history of the country, things like residential segregation and school segregation, right? Um, just the fact that many white people don't encounter people who aren't white in their day-to-day lives. And of course that can lead organically to all white friend groups if people don't take proactive measures to get out of their circumstances. You know, having said that, I think that there are um, the kind of proactive measures that are things like, um, you know, inviting the one Asian American woman who you called a friend at one point to your wedding. Um, You know, I think that's maybe a little bit less productive, um, certainly less authentic. And then there are things like perhaps changing, uh, you know, the neighborhoods where you spend time or mm. even the neighborhood where you live, right? Changing um, kind of the demographics of the people that you come into contact with day to day. Which is a more authentic change than yeah, the mere I think that's invitation. Right. And you write that identity capitalists have been a part of American history from the beginning. You see it in slavery, in women's suffrage, in segregation. What are a few uh, examples of early identity identity capitalism? Well, I think it's really interesting to look at what was going on around the time of the women's suffrage movement. And what we saw at that point in time was that men who opposed granting women the right to vote, of course, 
they made arguments from their own perspectives, but even more so because there were anti-suffragist women, um, quite a large group of them, actually. Uh, what what these men would do uh, just as frequently is elevate the writings of uh, women who considered themselves anti-suffragists. And they would say, well, um, let a woman tell it. This is what women really want. And so I think of that as identity capitalism because, of course, um, it's an example of men using women, right? Like using the identity of the women who are saying these things to lend credibility to them and uh, broadcast or lend more gravitas to uh, the arguments that these men themselves want to be making. Again, capitalizing on someone else's identity to drive home your point, which maintains inequality. How about some more recent examples? Why don't we start uh, with this voice? Yes, women face so much more scrutiny. Um, you know, in, in a lot of sense, it was a lot about looks, you know, the physicality involved in serving in public office, which was ridiculous to me, um, whereas men even today um, aren't under that kind of microscope. And also, um, I think women mothers um, are kind of scrutinized also, much more so than a male candidate um, when it comes to family and children. And I was asked so often, how are you going to do this with children? So maybe you recognize that voice, former governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin. Professor, what does she represent to you through this lens of identity capitalism? So I think that John McCain and uh, the Republican Party more generally engaged in identity capitalism when it came to Sarah Palin. So one thing that they were trying to do with the selection of um, former Governor Palin was to capitalize on a sentiment among many women in 2008 who were disappointed that Hillary Clinton wasn't the Democratic Party's nominee. And so the idea was that perhaps uh, as a political strategy, they could peel off some of these disaffected Democratic voters who are excited about having a woman in the highest office by naming Sarah Palin to the ticket. Well, now, for Sarah Palin and for her supporters, that was probably a very important choice and a meaningful one. I think it was. And I do not at all mean to imply um, that Sarah Palin resisted this or that she wasn't aware of it. I think that she was aware of it and uh, that she participated in it and even encouraged it and amplified it. Do you think that it was identity capitalism as well when President Biden chose Kamala Harris, for instance, as his veep? Oh, I think that it was. And, you know, I think that this is one of the interesting and difficult dynamics that I try to pull apart in the book is that there is a gray area. You know, I mean, I think that there are some examples of identity capitalism that we can think of as just um, uh, purely cynical or purely self-interested. And then sometimes there are situations where good strategy and... Um, you know, other uh, perhaps more altruistic goals align. Um, but drawing a line between those two things is difficult. Um, I would not I would not make the claim that either the selection of Sarah Palin or the selection of Kamala Harris is entirely um, positive in its consequences or entirely negative in its consequences. But it can be a mixed bag for sure. Absolutely. OK, here's another piece of tape, a, a fab piece of tape. What are you afraid they're going to see? My face. 
you know, What's everything. Wrong with your face? I, you know, my the wrinkles, you know, my beard, all that, you mm. know, just I'm not confident with it. Can I take your cap off? Yes. You're a handsome man, and I feel like you're hiding away with all of this stuff. Okay, so that's the British fashion designer Tan France there from TV's Queer Eye. What do the Fab Five demonstrate to you? So I think the Fab Five um, and Queer Eye more generally provide a really interesting example of the intersection between identity capitalism, which we've been talking about, and another concept I discuss in the book called identity entrepreneurship. So clearly there's some identity capitalism going on with respect to the Fab Five, the producers of the the the, the show um, are getting a lot of benefit from the way that these um, five men perform queer identity and, uh, you know, the way that they play with, um, you know, some of the stereotypes even associated with with queer identity. But and, there's entrepreneurialism going on. Yeah, on, there's on entrepreneurialism going yeah. on as well. Um, and so I think that uh, the, the, the way I think about identity entrepreneurialism is when members of um, particular groups use their own identities to benefit themselves. They're being entrepreneurs. And so I would say that every single one of the Fab Five is an entrepreneur. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. You say this as well about Rihanna. Yes, uh, I think Rihanna is also a good example. Um, there's ways that she leverages both her, uh, you know, her racial identity and her identity as a woman and um, uses those things to benefit herself. Identity capitalism is not just about pop culture and corporate America. You do find it baked into the legal system and the law itself judges, juries, labor and employment law in particular. Uh, again, you're a law professor at DU. What examples stand out to you of how this touches the legal system? Well, so I like to start by talking about judges themselves and what they do, because, of course, that's going to affect the whole legal system. Um, I think a few interesting examples that I can give coming out of um, uh, op uh, judicial opinions are, so I notice this interesting trend that judges like to quote Martin Luther King Jr. when they are about to rule against a plaintiff who is a person of color and particularly a black plaintiff. Um, and it's almost as though they're using Martin Luther King and his legacy and his words, sometimes taken out of context, to shield themselves and to, um, uh, you know, shield the opinion from accusations of racism. You find as well this operating in juries and in certain kinds of rulings. Um, so the identity of jurors um, or the identity of accusers or uh, the, of the accused all playing into perceptions of whether something is just. Share a few words about that. So the jury situation is really interesting. Um, again, without going too deep into uh, the law here, um, there's case law that says that when a when a, a, a prosecutor is selecting a jury in a criminal trial, um, they can't strike people from the jury on the basis of race. So um, what prosecutors will sometimes do, um, and prosecutors in some instances have even acknowledged this in writing, is, uh, is uh, allow onto the jury um, a person of color so that they can strike a more objectionable person of color later on. And courts 
in some ways even encourage this by allowing the instance of the prosecutor not striking a person of color to, um, if you will, uh, shield or um, allow the later instance of the prosecutor striking a member of the jury. And that's a version of identity capitalism. You you are capitalizing in some ways on that person's identity. Yeah. So again, the prosecutor is um, using the identity of the person that they allowed onto the jury to benefit themselves um, to be able to strike another person who they don't want on the jury. There's uh, some strategy there that's very interesting in the capitalism Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And I think that uh, what it may go to is the idea that some members of a racial group may be more acceptable than other members. And I think that this is one of the problems with identity capitalism is that it gives the identity capitalists the ability to uh, decide and perhaps provide some benefits to members of disadvantaged groups who they believe are more acceptable. You have mentioned that authenticity is very important to you, engaging whether something is indeed authentic or if it's just performative. Honesty as well. Apologies. You, you place some emphasis on that. In just the last few seconds, why apologies? I think apologies are important because when people have done something that is, let's say, racially problematic, there's a tendency to get defensive. But instead, just apologizing or taking responsibility for the action can create an opportunity for conversation, right? Like real, meaningful, authentic conversation instead of closing the door to it. Thank you so much, Professor. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Nancy Leong is a law professor at the University of Denver. Her new book is Identity Capitalists, the Powerful Insiders Who Exploit Diversity to Maintain Inequality. We spoke in June. And that is Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're tuned to CPR News and KRCC.